All right, good morning, Redemption Church. How we doing? Good to see everybody. Thanks for coming out way in the back. How you guys doing? Tailgaters, sweet. I think I saw one of you, I think it was in that white car back there with mimosas last week. I don't know about that, but that's all right. They're charging. It's $6. And so if you have cash, they don't take card. You can head back there and then don't tell anyone I said that. Although this is live stream, so I'm joking. Okay. So good morning. My name is Vince. I'm one of the pastors. I'm delighted to be with you. Listen, we are in a series in the Gospel of John. This is week three. We've told you from the first couple weeks that the beginning of John serves in the first 18 verses as this introduction or overture, right, that introduces the rest of the book. That if you can kind of wrap your mind around what's happening, what themes are being introduced and things like that in the first 18 verses, it gives some structure for the rest of the book. And so uh, in week one, we kind of introduced this idea that the whole purpose of why John wrote this gospel, which is pretty much just a documentary about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, was so that all who would read it would believe, know, trust, and follow Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And we have been unabashed that that is our desire, that if you're here as we go through this book, we long for you to know and to trust and to follow and to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. This should help both those who don't believe that yet and should really help those of us who do because we can always grow. In fact, we always need to grow. In fact, we have to be the church that Christ has called us to be and the scriptures by the power of the Spirit form us to be that type of people. And that's our hope and that's our trust. So that was week one. Last week, we saw that Jesus is the life and the light of the world that has come into the world to shine in the darkness. And so where there is darkness, Jesus comes in and brings light. And we say that Jesus has now arrived. And so the true reality amidst the facade of darkness is that Christ is present and is shining light upon the darkness. Now, especially in the midst of the church, which is the gathered community of God's people, there should be no darkness. Why? Because we are the temple of Jesus. That if we house Christ as his church, as the temple of God, then in our midst should be no darkness. And so we longed and, and prayed and petitioned the scriptures to form us and to shape us into a people that would fight against that darkness and push into relationship and, and love each other in the light of Christ. Now this last part of the overture introduces a significant part of the reality because it talks about how this word, how this light became flesh and dwelt among us. And so I want to introduce to you, so we, this is a crazy story. We had a friend, wasn't, wasn't really a friend, but someone that we got in touch with that we then wanted to invite to come and, and talk about this for just a moment. And it's a crazy thing. He was here shooting a music video, but would you guys please welcome up Kanye West? I'm just kidding. He's not here. I'm joking. But how many of you for a second thought he was? <laughs> And, and, and here's why. This is an absolutely ridiculous illustration. But there's something about this week where I was just thinking through the reality of these interactions. I can't remember how it came up. I was talking to some people about the best celebrity interaction that they've had. And you start talking to folks about this thing and they start sharing these stories of elation and joy and celebration. Like, man, I long to meet this person and then I finally got to be in their midst and it was amazing. It was everything I hoped for, right? 
And so Kanye West is, is not here. And for some of you, you're like, I don't know who he is. Some of you are saying, I would not want to meet him. And that's no offense to you, Kanye. I know you watch this. Um, but it is saying, this, can we just take a moment to acknowledge that God is here? And, and I think that's become somewhat trivial for the people of God. Can, can, we just, can we just for a moment stop for a second and realize that God dwells amongst us right now? That, that whatever person you would just so long to meet, like I would just love to, like for me, like Drew Brees, I'd love to sit down with Drew Brees. I'm from, I'm from New Orleans, like he's a hero of mine, that type of idea. And if you could just encapsulate some of that emotion and realize that the creator of the world who lived perfectly, died for your sins, and defeated Satan's sin and death on our behalf is here right now and dwells amongst his people. And it has become this distant reality, it feels like, for so many of us, as we kind of just float in and out of life as if he's still living somewhere else. As if he's in heaven, and heaven is this distant place far off in some other universe. And he's just sitting on some throne somewhere, looking in a telescope from a distance. It's what's happening down here. No, no, the Bible tells us that God dwells amongst his people now. And I long for today for that to, to be wrapped up in our hearts and our minds, that we would celebrate the fact that when you leave this place, when you go about your week, you walk with God. Like the very God that made you, you walk with. And he's present with us now. So what we're going to do to tell this story, there's lots to say about this passage. It's one of my favorites in all the scripture. We're going to do a survey of God's presence throughout the whole scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, looking at the presence of God. And so there's more things uh, to teach here than I could ever fit in 35, 40 minutes, but we'll try and do our best that we again would have our hearts move towards, wow, God is with us. And so let me read today's text one more time. And I'm going to share this quote with you and we're going to pray. But it says this, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God dwelled among his people and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him. That's John the Baptist. We'll talk about him more next week. And cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. I'm going to break down this text in just a bit, but I want to share this quote with you from this uh, author, missionary, pastor who's since passed named Leslie Newbegin. And it gets at the heart of why we think this gospel, this story, this, this documentary about the life of Jesus is so important in forming us to be a witness to the world. He says this, how can this strange story of God made flesh, of a crucified Savior, of resurrection and new creation become credible for those, and he's, now he's talking about the world, whose entire mental training has conditioned them to believe that the real world is the world which can be satisfactorily explained without God? I know of only one clue to answering that question, only one true hermeneutic of the gospel. It is a congregation that actually believes it. 
In other words, how will people ever believe that this is the true story of the world? And the first lens would be to look at this and to look at God's people and say, that looks like something God would be king of. And that's what the scriptures hopefully help us do. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. I'd like to pray today for our time. I'm going to pray for another church, as we always do on Sunday mornings. We'll pray for Christ Church of Flagstaff, a great partner in a lot of the work over the last five, six months. And also just pray for our country in the midst of a lot of the difficult realities that we all see every day, including the devastation in Louisiana, my home state. Please be praying for the churches in Lake Charles and for the people there that have lost their livelihoods and homes. Let's bow our heads. God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your love. God, we ask that you'd speak to us. And God, we just briefly come to you in prayer to ask that you would illuminate the scriptures to us and your story. God, do the work of forming your people this morning. God, we pray for our friends over at Christ Church. God, would you guide them in the scriptures? God, as they open them up, would you form them as well to be the church and to love the gospel and to give you glory? God, we pray for the pain that is very real. God, across our nation, God, we pray that you would move swiftly, God, in using your church to be light amidst the darkness and the pain. God, we pray for the devastation that has happened to the southern coast of Louisiana and East Texas. God, would there be uh, your people in droves showing up, God, to love and to care. Would you minister, Lord, by the power of your presence, God, to those who are hurting, those who are affected in ways that we cannot understand. God, we need you this morning like we need you every day of our lives. God, would you be the king and the God that has changed us and is changing us for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start in the beginning, like I said, as we survey the presence of God. We're going to move somewhat quickly through the narratives and then spend most of our time back in the text for today. But Genesis 1 and 2, days 1 through 5, God starts creating. In the beginning, God, right? And so God in days 1 through 5 creates the environment for which his glory would go forth, for which his presence would be in the midst of humanity. So he creates the plants and the sky and the heavens and the sun, and he creates the world that we know it, the universe and the cosmos that would exist, that where he would exist to dwell and be with his people. Then in day six, God creates animals and he creates humanity. Adam and Eve are created in the image of God, and he says this in Genesis 1:26. let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over everything that moves on the earth, that what he's saying is, is he's created these people for communion with him to be in his presence and then now has invited them into the family business. He says in 2.15, Genesis 2.15, that they would have to work the ground and to keep the ground. We call this the creation mandate, that God employed his people to cultivate and to care for the world that he has given us. He invites us into the work that he does. Why? Because he wants to commune and to partner and to be with his people. Now, one of the things that's happened over COVID, I don't know if many of you families experienced this, but there were a lot of time for house projects, okay? And so you just, and it was always like, I think my wife's here somewhere, but let's, hey, how about this one, right? And what about this one? And then maybe do this project. And so we did a lot of house projects around the house, a lot of painting, a lot of building. And the best part of it was inviting my then five and two-year-old boys to be a part, okay? It was also the worst part of it, okay? Because if you've ever built something, 
with a five and two-year-old boy, it generally goes like, please don't touch that. Get off of that. Don't step on that. Don't eat that nail. Don't drill your brother. Please don't hammer him in the head. Stuff like that, okay? And it is an arduous, tedious task to have your children come alongside you in house projects. God invites humanity, who is not equipped like him, to cultivate the world for his glory. He puts his glory on display and invites us in to help be people that bring it to the world. And we are slow and we are not, we're not him and it doesn't go nearly as well as I'm sure it would have had he not invited us into the project. But he does because God longs to dwell and to commune and to be with his people. The whole entire narrative of scripture is God's pursuit of trying to get that back for his glory, for our joy. Let's look at the next text. Genesis chapter 3, we call this the fall. Adam and Eve were told, hey, don't do this one thing. They did that one thing. Sin enters into the world. In their disobedience, the relationship with God, the communion with God is now fractured. It is not what it was to the point where then God, going for his morning stroll through the garden, says, where are you? Because Adam and Eve have now hidden behind a bush because they were filled with shame. And God calls them out from the bush and calls them out from their shame, knowing full well what they've done. They've wrought sin and destruction upon the world, and he calls them out of that shame to say, no, 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 come back into my presence. And the way he purchases that, the way he clothes them, the same way Christ clothes us in righteousness, more on that in a bit, is he clothes them again through the slaughter of an animal. He takes the skins of the animal to cover the shame of the man that they too could have communion with him once again. The relationship with God is still intact, but fractured. They are sent from the garden to go forth. Zooming forward to Exodus chapter 25, again, this is a survey. There's other moments we could highlight, but we're not going to. So Exodus chapter 25, now we've moved forward. God has now chosen a people for himself to again display that glory to the world. And he chooses a people and he calls them Israel. Israel at the head has a forefather named Abraham. From Abraham would come the nation of Israel and his people were meant to display God's goodness to the entire world. Blessed to be a blessing. God in the midst of this in Exodus chapter 25, after he's delivered Israel from Egypt where they were enslaved, longs again to be in the presence and to dwell amongst his people. And so he says this in Exodus 25, verse 8, and let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And so the Ark of the Covenant is constructed where God would dwell in the Ark that he might be amongst the people. The tabernacle is made. The tent of meeting is constructed. These moments and these places for the people of God to once again commune with their maker. But again, it is not what it once was because now one person gets to go and to be in the presence of the Lord. And not fully, but that was the high priest and the high priest alone. 
Even Moses, who many of us have heard of, and we're going to hear about him again in our text in just a bit. Moses, the man that God chose to liberate Israel through him from Egypt, God's closest confidant in that season. He only gets to see God from the back. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses implores God, can I see you? Can I behold your glory? And God says, if you look upon my face, my glory will kill you. And so he says, I will pass in front of you, hide behind this rock. And when I pass, then look and you can see me from behind. And the glory overwhelms Moses. You cannot see me face to face. So again, you see this pattern. It was perfect. We blew it. God moving in. I want to be amongst my people. Continuing on in the text. Uh, First Kings. Israel is now in the promised land. Again, they went from Egypt to a land flowing with milk and honey. And so God says, go and be there. It will be your headquarters, if you will, to go again and be a blessing to the world, to bring my glory to the world. King David, who many of you have heard, he's the one that slayed Goliath, right? David and Goliath. Maybe you've heard him from the Bible stories, right? But King David, the first, or rather the second king of Israel, is dedicated to erecting a temple where they would put the Ark of the Covenant, where they would put God's presence. God commands David to do so. He doesn't finish the temple. His son Solomon picks it up in 1 Kings chapter 8. The, ark, or the temple is built and the ark is moved in. God's presence again is amidst his people. And in 1 Kings 9, God says this. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord, the Lord said to him, I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. God's saying again, I'm moving in to be with you, that my eyes, I will see and shepherd and bless. My glory will be present in the temple amongst my people once again. But he continues in verse six, but if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and statutes that I set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. I will cut off Israel from the land I've given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. God says, I want to be here. I want to be amongst you. I want my glory to be present amongst the people. Just please like, keep my commands. Follow my ways. Bless the world. Shocker but the people of God do not listen. And again, they disobey, and again, they chase after other gods, and again, they chase after other idols, and again, they abandon the God that longs to be present with his people. By Ezekiel 11, the prophet shares this, that God's glory had departed from the temple. That temple would later be destroyed in 586 as the Babylonians came in and destroyed and ransacked Jerusalem, sending the people of God into captivity, fulfilling what God had said. And again, they're wondering what's going on. God again saying, I want to be amongst you and with you, but you continue in your rebellion. You would think that God would have given up at this point. Like it's at some point here, like enough's enough. You guys just don't, you don't want me. I want to be with you, but you don't want me. But then he sends a prophet named Zechariah in Zechariah 2.10. 
says this, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. That amidst all the rebellion, all the we don't want you, we want this instead, or we want this and we'll take a bit of you. That's what it was often. God sends a prophet to remind Israel that no matter what it looks like, I am still going to fulfill my purpose and I will get my glory and I will come and accomplish my purpose because I'm God. And so there will be a day where I will dwell in your midst again. At this point, shortly after, God goes silent for 400 years. And so in the Bible, if you're not familiar, we have the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament, the Jews call the Hebrew Scriptures. And so in between Old Testament, New Testament, is about 400 years from the book of Malachi to the book of Matthew. And in that time, can you imagine the waiting that the people of God sat in? They used to speak, they used to have his presence, and now God has gone silent. They're waiting. When will he come back? Will he come back? Will he fulfill all of the promises like Zechariah and Isaiah and all of the prophecies of the prophets to say, I'm coming back and I will establish my kingdom forever? And they waited and they waited and they waited until our text today, first John, or sorry, John chapter 1, verse 14. And then the word became flesh. And then God came and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. All the waiting. All the, did we screw it up for the last time? Will he still want to be with us? And the answer is yes, yes, and yes, and we know it because he showed up in fleshed. He showed up in person like you and I. God put on flesh and dwelt among us. And the flesh, he was enfleshed as a poor nobody. It goes on to tell us that when we, we haven't seen God, right? But if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. And God chose to reveal himself after all of that time, after all of the waiting, after all the desire to be in their presence. He desired to reveal himself as a poor nobody to change the world and turn it upside down. To reestablish what it meant to be a person in the kingdom of God. God became like us while also being fully like him. It's a crazy idea to think through. If you're, not, if you're newer to the faith or maybe you're still you're here and you're checking out, we believe as Christians that God was 100% man and 100% God. That in no moment was he not fully both of those. Although there's some theological debate about the moment he's on the cross about to die, we're not going to do that today. Can we stop for a second? All we did was tell God, no, we want something different. And so what did he do? Instead of abandoning the project... He became like you and I. 
and he moved into the mess that is this world, filled with sin, hurt, pain, death, betrayal. And he came into all of this and lived a perfect life. Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in every way as you and I ever have been, and yet did so without sin. There is nothing that he uh, experienced that you have not experienced. I think I said that right. He experienced it all and did it perfectly, enfleshed God. That, this is a crazy idea. And, and John in the, mo, in the midst of this, so he's combating all sorts of narratives that would say this is crazy. First, just thinking about the idea would be crazy. God would come down into this mess makes no sense for any of the thinkers of the day. Because in every, oh, we've said this so many times here, in every other religion and thought and philosophy in the entire world, it's all about how man achieves enough to get to God who is holy and up here. But the Bible and Christianity say, this climbing was impossible, you couldn't do it, and so God came down and dwelt amongst his people, lived, died, and rose that we again could be with him, the incarnation of Jesus. There's massive teachings at the time that wouldn't believe this. It said this was crazy because there's the flesh, right, to the Greek people, the flesh, like our bodies were seen as, as weak and futile. And so why would God put on something weak? God could never be that weak. What Christ does by coming in is he re- Right? He resets the beautiful importance and value of the human being. He shows us what it means to be fully human by reinstilling the dignity and value of us and our embodied forms. This is a mass. There's, I, I, we could do 10 weeks on this passage alone. So we're not covering everything here. This will get fleshed out, pun intended, uh, over the next months as we go through this book. But I want to continue going on. In verse 16, from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. We talked about this a bit last week, so I won't go into depth. But the whole world, all people have experienced the grace of God, the common grace of God who holds this world together. Without it, we would be at each other's throats this very moment. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. Grace and truth came in. In other words, what Moses did with the law, what Moses did with the Old Testament was partially reveal who God was and is. But the fullest revelation of God came through Jesus. So now when we look to Jesus, we see God. We live in a time in a world not all that different from any other time and world. We're not the first culture, society, and era to experience genocide, brokenness, and pain. We're not the first culture and history and era to experience the absolute fracture in the one another's, in the treating of each other as awful, different 
and broken. As outsiders, as destitute, etc., etc., and all along the way. Jesus tries to cry out to his church and say, I'm here. And I come with grace and with truth. And those two things must bind the church together in our service. That there would be graciousness in the way that we speak, deal, and treat one another. That there would be truth in the way that we speak, live amongst, and live with one another. Because to not live that way means you don't and I don't have Jesus with me. We learn later in the book of Galatians that the fruit of the Spirit of God is love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, and self-control. If our lives are not marked by those things, we do not have the Spirit of God. If you look at the way that you treat others and it's not filled with the fruit of the Spirit, then the Spirit is not with you and it's not with me. Now, I'm not even talking at like a salvation level, but maybe. Because this is who and how the people of God should look because of this passage. Not not because you've done enough to earn that, but because of this passage, because Jesus came with the fullness of grace and truth and has set us free to be his. And because of this next passage, as we continue on in the survey of the presence of God and land this plane over these last two passages, he says this in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, They were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house and they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared among them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus had said, and we'll study this later as we get in further into the Gospel of John, but he says in John 16, 7, it is to your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus raises from the dead, leaves the tomb and tells the people that witness it, it's better if I leave. They're like, no, stay. He's like, it's better if I go, because if I go, you get the Holy Spirit. That promise is fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 as the Spirit of God comes amongst the people of God and now dwells in the people of God this day until the day he returns. Do you see the ark and the narrative of God? God's like, okay, I'm fully with you in the first garden. But then you blew it, so I had to clothe you so we could still have some relationship. Then he tries to move into Israel, and he does it through his presence, through the ark, through the temple, and they continue to reject him. So then he sends his son Jesus to literally walk amongst other humans. But again, the access was limited to just those people at that time. So God longing again to be with humanity leaves and sends his spirit to dwell amongst his people. And so when we say that God is truly here right now, that's not hyperbole. It's not rhetoric. 
It's just truth. That God is present amongst his people. One of the things I've realized as I've gotten older and I've looked back on my childhood is in my relationship with my parents, now that I'm a parent, is there's many things that I did not in their presence that I never would have done in their presence, okay? Like, in fact, to think them would have been an issue. Oh, there goes some communion. Don't worry. Don't scramble. It's fine. Oh, there goes the other one. Well, so there's a handful of things <laughs> I wouldn't have done. Namely, maybe some word choice, some other things. There's something about your parents being present in the room that influences your behavior, correct? Even to this day, when my parents come to visit, certain things aren't said. God is here. When you leave and drive, he's not here because we're at church. He's here because you are the church and he dwells in the church. So when you leave, he's still with you. When you go home, he's still with you. When you're on Facebook, he's with you. When you're watching whatever you watch, he is sitting there with you. When you engage with another human being, he is with you. When you pray, when you read your Bible, when you engage, when you go hiking, when you do whatever, when you're at work, God is with you. Like, I'm screaming it because we have to believe this. Otherwise, the world will never understand this story. There is not another hermeneutic with which the world can understand the craziness of the gospel outside of a church that actually believes it. So if this were true, let me just let me ask it that way. If this were true, how would that influence your behavior? If this were true, husbands, how does this influence the way you parent and you love your wives? If God was always in the room, and he is. Wives, the way you parent and love your husbands, Kids, the way that you honor your parents and serve God, the way you treat your classmates and love your neighbor. Roommates, the way you decide or not decide to put away your dirty dishes. It's hitting close to home for some people, I think. Like somebody just got an elbow right there. That's you. He's talking about you. That's you. You're bad at that. God is with us, y'all. And yet it is still not what it was. But it will again one day be what it was. Because the end of Scripture, the narrative doesn't end with the Spirit of God and where we're at now. No, it ends here in Revelation 21, where he says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will, well, he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Everyone say hallelujah. I mean, does that not sound good? Right? I like so many of you, I know you're so broken up about the stuff we just have to continually read and see. And, and man, we live in the, probably the greatest, most privileged time in history. If you just look at what we have. And where we're at. I long, I long to have a deep understanding of the presence of God now. I know it's coming one day, and that will be perfect and beautiful and amazing. But the world needs God's presence now. Okay? It needs the presence of grace and truth and light and logos truth right now. And that comes through y'all and me, us. And not just us, okay? But the church with presence in Pastor Philemon and their congregation and Pastor Chris and Christ Church, Pastor Daniel and Church for the Nations, amongst God's people in this city, this state, this world. They need God's presence now. This book will challenge us to live like him. I pray, we're literally praying every day that the Spirit of God would make you and Jesus indistinguishable from the world. And hear me, that's not an idolatry thing, not that like you'd be their savior, don't, don't hear me wrong, but they would see the way that you and I live and say, that is Jesus. And we do that by pointing everyone to him and acting and living like him. And the best way I know to do that is by believing that he's with us and that the spirit of God resides in his people to form them into his image, shape them into his people, and cause what comes out of them to be the things of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are here right now. Lord, it's very easy to just kind of forget 
as we just move about our day and life, as we just tackle the realities of day-to-day life, we tackle the realities of pain and brokenness that is around us and pervades our, our world and our society. God, but we need to start in the right place, and that place is with you, in your presence. You tell us it is there that we find the fullness of joy. You tell us it is there that we are at peace. Ultimately, Lord, we do all of this for your glory. We gather this morning for your glory. That our own hearts now, above all things, would seek to praise you, thank you, and grant glory unto your name as we sing and respond. Lord, you will be most glorified as we look more like you, and so we plead with you to transform us into your likeness. Christ, we love you. Thank you for the cross, for the resurrection, and for the opportunity to be called children of God. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.